All right, so everyone listening, thank you so much for listening to Eldar Talks Games. My name is Eldar Basic, and I will be your host tonight. Um, I have a very special guest for you guys. Um, please give a heartfelt welcome to Blake J. Harris, the raddest, best-sellingest author of Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle That Defined a Generation. How are you doing tonight, Blake? I'm great. Thanks, Eldar. Thanks for having me on. And, you know, just to kind of mimic what I said earlier, uh, just wanted to, you know, thank you immensely for coming on to the show. I know that um, you were on John O'Petch's uh, podcast, Putting in Work, and when I listened to your interview on there, I was just like, wow, so he's open to, like, talking with, like, us. That's awesome. So I figured, you know, I'd just reach out and go from there, man. So thanks again. No, it's my pleasure. As I told you before the show, I... I learned from Tom Kalinske and Al Milson and a lot of other folks at Sega that, you know, nothing bad happens when you talk to people who are passionate about your product. So I, um, whether you have one listener or a million listeners, hello, all you listeners out there. I, I'm always psyched to talk about this. And I also feel, you know, so fortunate to have been the one to tell the story that I love, you know, talking about it in any venue I can. I guess one of the first things I wanted to ask you was, okay, so right now you're probably super aware that we're in the midst of E3 2019. I'm sure you're watching it. I'm sure you're tuned in, or maybe I'm not so sure. Um, I guess my question is, um, I just would like to know like what you're playing nowadays. Do you keep up with gaming industry trends? And if so, like what are you in particular looking forward to that's coming out maybe next year, the year after, maybe in terms of consoles or games? Sure, that's a great question. Uh, yes, I'm very aware that it's E3. Um, I, my, obviously, I've written, you know, I've now written two books and spent about three or four years on each of them, and the reason is because I find the game industry so fascinating, even more so than playing games. Um, so I like to keep up with what's going on. Uh, for me, you know, having just written a book about VR, that came from again a place of passion. So I'm I'm really bullish and excited for virtual reality stuff. So that's usually where my eyes are. Um, though unfortunately, that's probably not what, you know it's definitely not the focus of E3, and uh, you know th that's been moving along slowly. But anyway, uh, you know, in terms of what I'm actually playing these days, uh, I just got an Oculus Quest uh, like two weeks ago, and I've mostly been playing that. Otherwise. I am, uh, I, you know, I, I have a, a PS4, or I have a PS3, uh, I guess I'm a PlayStation guy, but really I'm more of a Nintendo guy, and uh, I think that's partly because I never really got into first-person shooters, so I still love platformers, and I, and uh, you know, so I, I've, been play, I've been playing Cuphead, I play NBA uh, 2K19 on Switch, and I am, was really excited today that uh, that new Super Lucky's Tale is coming to the Switch because I love Lucky's Tale from the Oculus, you know, the launch title, and I love that property. So that, that was my favorite news of the day. What about you? What, what, what are you excited about? What you just said in the last sentence made our worlds extremely small. So speaking of new Super Lucky's Tale, my girlfriend is actually the community manager at Playful. That's awesome. Uh, well, then you're in for a treat because, um, you know, one... I know some people, uh, okay, well, I guess I should just say one of the benefits of having written a book prior to this most recent one is that I got a lot of feedback, uh, sure. some criticism, sure, well, a lot of criticism, but mostly positive things, fortunately. But, but, but one 
that very valid criticism of my opinion was that I didn't talk enough about the game development. And so with my most recent book, which again was in a very different way, focused on a first party hardware company, Oculus, I wanted to also see the developer's perspective more. So I picked Playful, which is the developer of, of Lucky's Tale as like the main vantage point. So I, I'm a big fan of Playful and uh, probably of what your girlfriend is doing. So now that you and I apparently have kind of this intertwining thing with Playful, um, so I know that after his tenure at, I want to say Bungie, Paul Bettner started Playful Corp uh, after making words with friends and selling in. And shortly after, he dabbled in VR games like Lucky's Tale and um, Starchild. So like I said, you know, I've had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Bettner at the local Christmas dinner. Uh, that being said, what drew you to Paul Bettner and subsequently what drew you to Playful Corp as a company? Well, I guess they're Playful Studios now, but yeah, what drew you to them? Like, just curious. Oh, that's a great question because, I mean, I'm especially happy to answer it because I think Paul Bettner is, and I don't say this lightly, one of the greatest people that I've ever met. Like, just a, he's a very nice, he's, he's such a nice guy and also su super creative and also knows how to balance that with business stuff, which is, you know, everything I like to write about. Um, so for me, I mean, I think that I, I wish that the answer was kind of more eloquent or visionary on my part, but part of it was just that, you know, Oculus, the Oculus Rift launched with two titles, two bundled in titles, uh, you know, the, the Eve Valkyrie VR game and, and Lucky's Tale. And so for me to want there to be a payoff for the audience, I wanted, I, you know, I was at least looking closely at those two studios. Um, but, but, but to your point, like once I actually started talking with Paul Bettner and realizing that he had this incredible backstory behind it, um, I think I think he worked in ensemble, and then he yeah, then he started New Toy with his brother, and they created Words with Friends, and just hearing the whole story about how Words with Friends became, quote unquote, an overnight success, and and how much passion and energy and risk um, he and his brother and also his wife, uh, you know, financially they had put into it. Um, I, I really liked that, and for me also, like I said, I, I like writing stories about that are at the intersection of creativity and business um, because because it's hard because you know creatively Paul loves virtual reality and but at the same time you know new super lucky's tale is not a VR game and and part of that is because Paul's responsibility is to his his employees in his mind uh, at, at playful and I guess also to their investors but um, you know and, and he wants to do what's best for the company in the long term so VR as much as he's passionate about it is not where the games are being made, where the money is right now. And so I, I love talking to someone like that who's pragmatic. Um, and, uh, you know, I was I was texting with him earlier today um, to, to, to uh, you know, to, uh, to congratulate him on the great news. And he sent me a photo from the Nintendo booth and he's so excited. Um, and so it's just been really nice to have this long term relationship with Paul and also with his wife, Katie, who deserves a mention because um, she's on the board of Playful and they're very much, uh, you know, like a, a two person operation. Um, and, and, you know, to see them over the years with um, pivoting from virtual reality and, you know, going from pioneers in virtual reality to pivoting. And, and it's pretty cool. You know, I guess the best way I'm sort of rambling, but the best way to answer why I find Paul so fascinating is because Lucky's Tale was one of my favorite VR games um, and, and Oculus helped pay for it. And then Paul was able to get it released on Microsoft and have them pay for the next iteration of Super Lucky's Tale. And then now it's on Nintendo. And 
I guess you could maybe say that looks like a uh, an IP without a home, but really it's it's Paul just thinking strategically for each game and, and figuring out how to maximize the exposure. And so I, I love that intersection of creativity and entrepreneurship. I mean, I think it's really cool that um, you were able to form this relationship with Paul Bettner. Um, I think he is one of, he's a very Todd Howard type. Um, he radiates this sort of kindness and just from kind of interacting with people at Playful and hearing stories about him, you know, it's not that he's no nonsense. It's just that he's really good to his employees. And I think that's something that's missing in the games industry now. Like I know that a lot of CEOs are really good to their employees, but he kind of has this very wholesome, even the way like he started Playful. You know, it's very wholesome. He wants it to be family friendly. And, you know, he kind of like wants to stay away from first person shooters and violence. And that's something that's sort of rare now. No pun intended. <laughs> so oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, first of all, the way that I literally introduce him in the book is I believe I say this is a portrait of Paul Bettner. And then it's an emoticon of a smiley face in the book, because that to me is Paul. He's always smiling. And that doesn't mean that he's, you know, takes things lightly or that, that he doesn't get serious when it's time, but but he is an, uh, a contagiously optimistic guy. And I love what he was trying to do with the studio when he started. And I think that they've thus far followed through with that vision. You know, he felt like there was a, um, um, a lack of supply of family friendly games, something that was largely just being supplied by Nintendo. And, uh, and it's so cool today to see them announce a partnership with Nintendo because I know, like, I, I remember looking through one of his early pitch decks for virtual reality back in July of 2013. It was from, and it was the pitch to Oculus was that we want to be the Nintendo of VR um, because that's just the sort of like the ethos of stuff you're talking about, the kind of family friendly games, the kind of addictive, character driven, often platformer games. Uh, and it's so cool. I'm, I'm so happy for him and for the, the team there. Um, and, and also, I think. I think a lot of uh, uh, executives in the game industry um, pay lip service to things like trying to minimize crunch or uh, taking care of their employees. And some of them, to your point, do actually follow through. But um, and obviously, uh, we both think Paul is someone who does and, and have the, you know, you have your girlfriend to provide that insight. And I've spoken to employees there. But I think it's also because Paul it was and is a developer. You know, he he's not a business executive by trade. He's someone who's really been through the process and knows what he's talking about and knows how he would want to be taken care of and, and actually follows through with that. You said it was ensemble. Um, I thought it was I thought it was punchy, but no, you're, you're right. Actually, it was ensemble. Whenever he left that, it was because of frustrations with um, this sort of takeover from Microsoft Studios. And he just wanted to... I mean, by the way, let's just say I'm the world's foremost Paul Bettner historian. So I think I... Oh, yeah, yeah, I, no, I, I, you're 100% <laughs> right. No, I know that much. But um, no, it's just it's just interesting seeing him kind of form a studio just based off of um, what he didn't want to see in the games industry. So hats off to him. And he's actually someone that I personally would love to get on the show someday. So fingers crossed, right? But anyway. All right, well, I'll see if I can help you out. And also... Um, if uh, if anyone wants to know what Paul Bettner looks like, you should Google um, Super Bowl ad uh, phone innovators, <laughs> and him and his brother are appearing in Super Bowl ads from like 2012. Um, they talk about creating. It's like it's a one second cameo, but it's a it's a it's a whole commercial with like cameos from the people who helped make the iPhone successful. Um, and and so that's the other part of it too is like um, Paul's success with Words with Friends 
was be, was was being a trailblazer. It was you know this this almost contradictory goal of creating something that feels like evergreen and familiar, but in a new medium. And that's what he tried to do with Lucky's Tale in virtual reality, and I would say succeeded, even though maybe the Oculus Rift didn't succeed as much as we all hoped. Um, but but that's, a, that's a really interesting challenge, you know, to, to try to be doing both of those things. It's interesting seeing, it's interesting seeing, like, whenever he went and made Playful, I wonder, and I'm sure actually I'll see the reason for this whenever I finish the book, but it was interesting seeing him go into VR, which actually leads me into my next question. So, what was it about VR that that captivated you? Was it was it Lucky's Tale, or was it another game, or was it a, the promise of something that made you so interested in VR as a technology? Because I know it wasn't the Virtual Boy. So I'm wondering what exactly it was, <laughs> you know, that made you want to not only, you know, be fascinated with it and t- and talk to people about it, but write a book about it. Like, what was the game, or what was the experience? I would say it was more so a book. It was like largely ready player one um and and just also the fact that um like that made me that that showed me a world where virtual reality could be ubiquitous and also not dystopian although there's i guess some dystopian aspects to that book and definitely the movie um but i think it was also like when my wife tried just the gear vr the mobile vr set up with samsung for the first time her reaction upon taking off the headset was this is the future and I think, and I felt that way. And I think, like so many people who tried um, an Oculus Rift developer kit or even uh, a, a, an Oculus Rift consumer version, felt that way. And I wanted to sort of examine, like, well, what does that mean? Like, how do you actually make a business out of it? And what is the future? And this book was certainly much more challenging to write than Console Wars because it was happening in real time. Um, but I think that also made it. I got a lot more good stuff. Um, unfortunately, the story uh, took a big twist when the main character got fired unexpectedly. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I still believe in VR, and that that was what drove me to want to write it. I remember, I remember when that news broke, um, and I know that you wrote about <laughs> it in, in in the history of the future. So I'm excited to get to that too. But pivoting just a tiny bit away from history of the future. I definitely cannot let you go without talking about Console Wars because that's one of my favorite books. Like, it just genuinely, it was an eye popper. And there's a question that as soon as you agreed to come on the show, there's a question I wanted to ask you that you didn't necessarily touch on in your book, which is fine. But the question is, if you had to pick Genesis or NES, which is it? Which is your personal favorite? Or is that too weird of a question? Or is that too broad of a question? I don't know. Uh, well, I'll, I'll say this. Like, <laughs> there's a reason why I didn't say that in the book. Like, I, this book is not my story. I mean, it was the story of my childhood, what was going on behind the scenes. But I personally prefer when journalists don't use I and they take themselves out of the story as much as possible. And obviously, I'm a storyteller, so I'm a, I'm a part of it. I'm not going to say otherwise but but i wanted this to be the story of the men and women who made it happen and who made my childhood happen um so that was very intentional um in terms of which system i would choose so so growing up my brother and i had a uh um a a a nintendo back in the late 80s and it was our favorite thing in the world and then 
we uh, begged our parents to get a Super Nintendo, but they wouldn't get it for us because, um, as my dad said, Nintendo will just come out the Super Duper Nintendo and a Super Super Duper Nintendo, and I guess he was kind of correct uh, in a way. But it was really because of backward compatibility. And so looking back, it was interesting to me that because Nintendo made the decision not to be backwardly compatible, I ended up no longer being a Nintendo kid, and I became a Sega kid uh, growing up. That said, um, you know, I still, like I said, I'm, I'm playing stuff on my Switch. Um, I'm not playing on a Sega console, or I'm not even really playing Sonic games. So, uh, you know, I, 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 if I were trapped on a desert island and I had the entire library of Nintendo versus the entire library of Sega, I would take Nintendo. But if I had to choose between the two consoles, the Super Nintendo and the Sega Genesis on this desert island, I would take the Genesis. And I would absolutely agree with you. Um, I started off with the Genesis. It was my it was my very first console, and one of the first games I ever got for it was Mickey Mania, um, followed by The Lion King, followed by Aladdin. Just a lot of very kid friendly games that were surprisingly just a little bit way too hard. And then the Sega Genesis, you know, I mean, it sort of had a, a long life, and I mean, there's a lot of interesting points that you touch on, you know, from like I specifically remember. Like one of my first memories is seeing advertisements for Sonic Tuesday, and mm-hmm. when I read about it in your book, it just it just hit me with the nostalgia. So, seeing seeing you know Nintendo's progression into like you know from the eighties, the nineties, into now, are you are you bummed that Sega didn't join them? Because I mean you know Dreamcast and then Kaputska. Like, are you do you wish there was a Sega? console nowadays that could compete and i mean where do you think where do you think they went wrong was it the dreamcast or was it just one too many failed console attempts i think it was one too many failed console attempts i mean yeah i'm sad i the whole the way the book ends is sad to me i i I think that the people at sega deserved better and uh and and i wish that that had a happy ending um so Like, I mean, obviously the book, or not obviously, but for listeners who don't know, the book doesn't really um, get into the Dreamcast era at all. I mean, it ends in 1996. But I do think that um, the writing is on the wall, and you could uh, sort of understand why things might have gone badly because of that relationship between Sega of America and Sega of Japan and, and how it had decayed, um, you know, during that time period. And that, that was kind of the saddest thing to me was, you know, going into this book, I assumed the most interesting battle in a book called <laughs> Sega and Nintendo and Battle of the Final Generation <laughs> would be that battle between Sega and Nintendo. But but truly, I believe it was actually between Sega of America and Sega of Japan. And that is what, in my opinion, uh, ended up being, being the downfall of the company, both with the Sega Genesis transition to the Saturn and then just as a console maker. And obviously, they're, you know, they're still around and they're living off of the, the Sonic IP. But I, I think... <laughs> I don't think they're doing a great job with that. And I think that, um, you know, the Sonic movie shows you uh, how they uh, maybe are not doing the best job possible. I, was, I didn't want to say it, but you said it. So that's fine. <laughs> what do you- yeah, I mean, like, to me, that's uh, I, don't, I would not blame Sega of, Gen- Sega of Japan, like specifically for mm-hmm. that movie at all. Sure. I have no idea what went on behind the scenes, but it does strike me as sort of like a too many cooks in the kitchen lack of vision situation um that that is really what you see throughout console wars so much um and, and it's sad because it's it's avoidable you know and um you know I, I guess it's also not surprising to me that sega still lives off of this sonic ip and that you know i was on the subway the other day and i saw a kid wearing a sonic shirt and and 
that's not the case for other video game icons, whether it's Crash Bandicoot or Pac-Man or Fry or whatever. You know, Sega did something special there during his his birth and, and early years that, that people are still wearing Sonic gear and loving Sonic 20 years later, even if there hasn't even been that many good Sonic games since then. And, and I think that that is really a tribute to the Sega of America team, uh, which we should mention, they, they didn't develop the game, though Sega Sonic 2 was developed uh, in conjunction with Sega Technical Institute in, in San Francisco. But, you know, uh, I, I don't want to make it seem like Sega of America was a one-man band, but they clearly had a really good handle on the character design and the marketing and the promotion and how to create an icon, how to create their Mario Killer and their Mickey Mouse. And it took a little bit of blowback, too, um, from Sega of Japan, because, you know, at some point, at one point during the book, you mentioned how one of the first iterations of Sonic was this kind of punk rocky. And, you know, I never Googled it, so I don't actually have an image. But the way you describe it, he was this very, like, edgy, punk rocky, like, just dark sort of character. And, you know, working with Sega of America, they were able to get him to the pure icon that we have today. And you're right. We don't yeah. we don't see that often. You know, we don't see a you know some sort of you know an a video game icon with that sort of staying power. But even 20 years later, when you look up video game wallpapers, you'll see Sonic next to Master Chief, next to Marcus Phoenix. You know, he's really stood the test of time, which I think is just really cool. Yeah, I would say that the the ratio between uh, quality of games and iconicness of the character um, that 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 Sonic has a disproportionately uh, different ratio than most of than than Master Chief and and Mario and and everyone else. Like I, I think that those games are typically very good, and most Sonic games are not. Um, and 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 you know, unfortunately, if you Google early concept art for Sonic, uh, there's there's nothing with the fangs. There is um, stuff of him with the Rock Band. There's very you know, th there's various versions. There's nothing like. Unfortunately, they didn't keep fantastic archives. But I think sort of the best way to see the Sega of Japan version of Sonic versus the Sega of America version is in that game Sonic Generations, because if you look at the Sonic like classic Sonic or whatever they called it, and then their, the modern day Sonic, um, you really see how much he has changed and how much he has gone back to sort of that original, um, lankier, less adorable, um, you know, I guess less favorable in my opinion, um, vision. Um, and, and since it happened slowly over many years, I don't think I ever really noticed how much the original Sonic had changed, but but in Sonic Generations, you can really see the difference between uh, what Sonic used to be and what he currently is or was at least per, as per that game. He was uh, he was certainly tubbier uh, in the original iteration, that's for sure. And that was one of the things I love Sonic Generations. Like that's one of my that's one of my favorite Sonic games. Yeah, I really liked it. Yeah. And it was it was always, it was always, it was almost jarring when I first popped it open. I was like, was he really like was he really like a little fat hedgehog? Like now he's all like super sleek and has like really cool, like long spikes and stuff. And like, was he really that tough? That's just I just thought that was I just thought that was really cool in that game. But you know, well, that's where we get back to the movie thing because again, I, I have no uh, inside information. I, I've never researched it. I don't know who is the decision maker, mm -hmm. but I can tell you that um, Tom Kalinske, the president of Sega of America from 1990-96 during this time, uh, he was definitely uh, pretty horrified by the Sonic that appeared in this most recent trailer, which you know we should mention that they're changing, so that 
but, but it's also like he was not adorable. I felt like the number one thing that he needed to be was adorable in addition to snarky or whatever else. Like, like you know, it, it should be like Detective Pikachu where, you know, he was adorable, but he's still a, a, a three-dimensional character. Um, you know, it, It's surely the eyeballs. So, it's the eyeballs and the, and the teeth. You know, if it just fix that, he's gonna be he's gonna he's gonna look fine. It just just don't give him human teeth and put his eyeballs together, and then you got Sonic. You know, you would think it'd be, you would think it'd be simple, but I mean, then again, you know, I'm not a 3D artist, and I definitely understand the amount of work that goes into it. So sometimes, you know, you gotta sure. give people a pass. Sure. Um, sure. One thing I did want to ask you, um, one of my very first impressions of Console Wars when I when I because I've heard about the book, you know, just kind of you know. Being, not in the game industry, but like being a um, surveyor of the games industry and following trends and stuff like that. You know, I've heard about console wars and I feel like I got in, I, I read it a bit, you know, later than I would have liked. But one of the things was, okay, so this guy wrote a book about console wars. That's a very heated argument, just kind of in general, you know, that we've seen, you know, Xbox 360, PS3, and especially Sega Genesis versus NES, SNES. My question is, have you had any like crazy like Twitter moments where maybe like fans kind of went off on you for painting Nintendo or Sega in a bad light at any point in the book? Like, did you ever have any blowback to the book or like from fans? Oh yeah, for sure. But I guess uh, yeah, that's not surprising and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, you know, I I, <laughs> I I guess in some ways I am sort of a. uh console war profiteer. Like uh, <laughs> I, I like console wars. I obviously hate people like harassing one another like i i like it when it's same thing with like you know a rival rivalry in sports like i like a good rivalry between the yankees and red sox but not when it gets to you know ad hominem attacks and actually like cruelness i I don't like that but but i love what it does for the industry i love that um you know it forces two people or two companies to be in my opinion better than they would have been without the competition and then you're right this was like there's a lot of nostalgia to this time period and a lot of strong opinions. And because the book um, does focus uh, definitely much more on the Sega perspective and the Nintendo perspective, there's there's plenty of Nintendo people who had some uh, choice words for me. Um, <laughs> I And then sometimes people the more, more calmly say that they feel like they were misled because the book says, you know, console wars subtitle Sega Nintendo the Battle of the Defiant Generation and it's more Sega focused and they feel like that's a rip off I, I felt like any literature that you read about the book like in the product description on Amazon or in the back of the book uh, it says pretty clearly what it is it's mostly the story of Tom Kalinske and Sega um, but I think that's kind of valid I guess if, you, uh, if they think that was poor labeling I guess, um, I guess anybody but, that said that I would probably disagree with i think you went back and forth between sega and you interrupted the sega storyline a little bit with you know nintendo stuff like with howard lincoln and stuff like that so i'd probably disagree with whoever said that but i digress <laughs> well i would also add a couple a couple things one is that um i had more access especially early on to former sega employees since none of them were affiliated with sega anymore um nintendo was notoriously difficult and it took me a couple of years to really break through and get that interview with howard lincoln and that relationship with him and peter main and all those others um the other thing too is i found the sega story more fascinating you know i think an underdog story is more fascinating and uh in a lot of ways i viewed my book as sort of like a sequel to david chef's book game over which is sort of the rise of nintendo story um but that's not really an excuse for like 
why I wouldn't include that because if it, if it was relevant to the narrative, I would have. Um, I, I, I really did think that the Sega perspective was more interesting. They also did a lot more, frankly. Like, uh, I think one of the things that makes Console War such a fun book and such a fun actual story was that Tom Kalinske empowered um, several executives with the autonomy to get stuff done and to do it quickly and to throw stuff against the wall and see what's stuck. And with Nintendo, it was much more rigid. So, um, you know, like there's a chapter uh, or the section of chapter where Sega learns at the last minute that Nintendo is going to do a price drop. So they sort of reorganize their entire marketing campaign um, for a trade show by staying up all night. And that's something that wouldn't happen at Nintendo, which, you know, is either a good, you know, we can argue if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's definitely a less dramatic thing that they set these plans and, and are pretty rigid about them. But yes, I have uh, met the occasional fanboy or two who, who doesn't like me or doesn't like my work. And, uh, and, 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 I, and like I said, like I sort of more, I applaud their enthusiasm. Like I, um, I, I don't really mind it that much. I'm glad that pe- I, I'd much rather have people this passionate about the gaming industry and about Sega Nintendo than, than not. Was there, was there anything that ever drew you to the um, Microsoft Sony console war, so to speak? Because one thing I always wondered, I was like, is he ever going to write about another console war, you know? That's a good question. Um, the answer is mostly no, but that's also because I haven't went looking for it. You know, mm-hmm. um, like I, I don't want to say that this story is, you know, what Microsoft accomplished and Sony accomplished was any less interesting than what Sega or Nintendo did. To me, it is because I haven't looked into it, but like I was specifically looking under certain rocks and, and searching for the story. Um, the other thing, too, though, is that. Um, like from a historical standpoint, like I remember when I first met with book publishers, um, one of the questions they asked me was like, why does this story matter? Other than it being like a cool story, um, like, like why should we care 20 years later from a historical perspective? And, and I could talk about that for, for hours because I think that this console battle is what created the modern day video game industry, you know, from making, from, from no longer making it a monopoly, you know, usually one console totally dominated and the other one was just like left to to uh, scramble and pick up the scraps. This, you know, Sega showed that there was more than one there was more room for more than one company in the console market. Um, they also showed that video games could be for adults and for teenagers, and then turned it much more into something like the movie industry and, and less of like a toy industry thing. I mean, back in the day, I bought I got my Nintendo and my Sega Genesis, or my grandparents did from. KB Toys or from other toy stores um, and, and Sega helped transform it more into mainstream entertainment. And then also just like, like uh, I guess logistically, like they actually did create an industry, you know, between the Senate subcommittee hearings and at the end of 1993 um, and the resolution to that, they created the, um, the ESRB uh, to rate games. They created um, the, the, the structure for what became E3. So like it really was the birth of the modern industry. And so um, I, I would, if someone wrote a book about future cons- the later console wars or even the earlier console wars, I'd definitely read it. And perhaps one day I would be interested in writing about it. Um, but I, I haven't found that hook yet. Um, but in general, I, 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 there's, not as, there's not as many books about the video game industry as I would like for there to be. So I certainly w- would encourage anyone interested in that to, to, to try to make it happen. Because I think there's so many great stories that have yet to be told. Um, and, and I hope that there'll be more and more video game books in the years ahead. We're starting to see kind of this growth of um, the video game industry and like 
um, developer knowledge um, kind of seeping through. Um, like mm-hmm. I'm sure you've probably read, you know, different games industry um, books like Jason Schreier's Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, Masters of Doom, and um, yep. you know, you mentioned Game Over earlier, which is one of my personal favorites. Do you have a person? Is that your personal favorite, or is there another um, games industry book besides your own, of course, that you just hold in reverence? Um, yes, I I really like all three of those books. Probably Game Over is the one that speaks to me most, but I, but but my favorite of all time to date is uh, Stephen Kent's Ultimate History of Video Games, which is more like an oral history than not. Um, and and his, you know, one of the hardest aspects for me in, in crafting console wars was that I just didn't even know who to talk to because there was no like list of here's the Sega employees, here's the Nintendo employees. It wasn't, none of that stuff was archived on the internet. So that was hard for me. And I can't even imagine how hard it was for, for Stephen because he didn't, like, you know, like I at least knew there was a Tom Kalinske and a Shinobu Toyota. He, you know, I guess as a reporter, he probably knew that from back then. But like, you know, there was no masterless for him, and he did an incredible job. Uh, you know, there's two versions of his book. One's called I think the First Quarter, and the other one's called The Ultimate History of Video Games. And I'd highly recommend either of those um, for anyone who's interested in the industry. One of the things as a video game enthusiast, you know, video game industry enthusiast, is seeing you know that you've conducted hundreds. Of interviews for this book that was one of the things that drew me into it i was you know one of my initial thoughts was okay so this book is going to have multiple perspectives from everybody that worked you know for lack of a better term right. for the console war was there any particular and i guess tom kolinsky withstanding was there any particular interviews that really still kind of stick to the front of your brain that were just special um just interviews that you know, again, again, for lack of a better term, that you just won't ever forget. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a it's partly a difficult question to answer because, like I said, I spent years on it, so I don't ever there, I never really think of these things as like a single interview because many times it was like several conversations over the course of years that existed sometimes by email, sometimes by text, some you know sometimes by phone, um, sometimes in person, um, but 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 the one that like does stand out as just like a very special and fulfilling interview to me, uh, which was for the console wars documentary. That's, uh, you know, still in the works, but, um, but I also, this was also, we filmed that while I was writing the book. So it was was very helpful. The book was, was getting Howard Lincoln. Finally. I mean, I knew from the beginning that he was like the number one person I wanted from Nintendo, um, because of, his incredible experiences with helping to basically found Nintendo of America and then becoming uh, the chairperson. And then he was current at the time when we interviewed him, he was the CEO of the Seattle Mariners, which Nintendo had purchased back in 1991 or 92. And and we did the interview from the owner's box at, at, uh, at, at Safeco field, the Seattle Mariners ballpark. So that was just really special wow. too, to like, you know, have him invite us there and, and be able to get like five hours worth of great stuff from him. Um, and then he has a great memory. So that, that was, yeah, that's probably the one that stands out. That was really special to me. That is, that's amazing. Um, one of my favorite moments from the book is actually at the very end, whenever, um, you outlined the uh, letter from Howard Lincoln to Tom Kalinske, I thought that was just the perfect, the perfect ending for that. It really gave it an emotional punch. Um, have you have you yeah thanks I mean, for the for for listeners who don't know the book ends with tom kalinsky leaving sega and getting a letter from howard lincoln who's then the head of nintendo basically saying he was sorry to hear tom was going that tom was a great uh, you know worthy f- 
foe or you know there was a, a lot of mutual respect and i think that that is you know that that's howard lincoln to me in a nutshell he he's a bulldog but he plays by you know he, he's guided by principles and a set of rules and and he truly has uh, admiration for the competition and, and really did admire tom as much as he hated tom um <laughs> And, and then also, I think that goes back to like what I was talking about with console wars. Like, I, I I like console wars when there's still that decorum to it. Like, I like people arguing about it as long as it's you're actually arguing about the content and not about you know each other and stuff that's unrelated. And I, and I think that's a good thing um, in general. That sort of competition. Exactly. Exactly. Um, one thing I did want to touch on um, before I probably let you go here in about nine minutes. I know you you know I know you have a thing to go to, but. Um, so maybe about a few minutes ago, you mentioned that um, you mentioned the console wars documentary. Last year, you did mm-hmm. get word that legendary um, production company Legendary uh, was going to be adapting the yeah. book into an actual TV show, which is, I mean, I'm not going to curse, but that's, that's crazy exciting. Um, I'm curious, are you working? Yeah, and life changing for me. Like this is not a, you know, it's life changing for me. This is not just like a ordinary occurrence getting your first book turned into a movie and then actually now it's going to be a tv show like it truly was life-changing i was able to quit my day job trading commodities and and write full-time and and uh i know i cut you off but i just wanted to let you know how big of a deal it was to me i assume that you want to know what's going on with the project yeah so um so last year we uh met with legendary and 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 uh are partnering up with them. We're still working with Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg and Scott Rudin, who uh, we had been working with originally when we were doing a movie with Sony. Um, and now we're doing it as a TV series, which I think um, is a is a better thing. Like, uh, you know, as a, as a guy who wrote a 550 page book, I clearly am somewhat verbose and prefer uh, longer nuanced stories. Uh, but back in 2012, a movie was seem more like the best way to get it out there. And fortunately, over the past seven years, uh, where we've entered the golden age of television or peak television or whatever you want to call it. And, um, it, you know, the, 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 there's much more of an appetite for longer form uh, television storytelling. And so I'm psyched that we're going to be doing it this way and that we have, uh, you know, it's going to be directed by Jordan Voigt Roberts. And, and we have a great writer, Mike Rosolio, who's written the pilot script already, uh, which is amazing. And, and I guess I, People probably think like I, I have to say that, or I would definitely say that. And I guess that's maybe true. So <laughs> you can't trust me, but like, but it really is amazing. And and like, it, it, it it's just weird to you know to see a screenplay of something that like an adaptation of something that you wrote. Because I'm you no, know, I'm possessive of console wars. I, I spent I did all those hundreds of interviews. I spent years, um, and I think that Mike just did such a great job of capturing the voice and and sort of the ambiance and characters to, uh, of my original. Of, of the book and also adding his own spin to it so like i really am thrilled and it's it's rare in the film industry to, to read a good script that you at least like so much upon the first read um but we have a great team and um and and right now or in the near future we're going to be meeting with distributors you know um places like netflix and hulu and cbs all access and hbo and all these places and figuring out where the home will be for the show and and hopefully we'll have an answer to that in the next few months that i'll be able to announce and then in addition we're also um doing this documentary that i've been directing with my longtime collaborator jonah Toulis that's also being produced by seth and evan um and scott and legendary um and then and, and i assume probably after we figure out where the the television series is going to be uh we'll try to do uh the documentary there 
as well. Um, so hopefully there's some good announcements coming in the near future. But but it's, I, I will also say it's the first time in my entire industry, my entire career in the film industry, where things are actually moving. Um, you know, it's sort of has a stereotype for being a very slow moving industry, and that's been accurate in my opinion. Um, but like you know, it was it was so awesome to see how fast it went from Mike. Uh, our writer putting together um, an outline to actually writing a script and then uh, you know sort of him and Jordan and the rest of the team working to build out like a Bible for the show um, and they're actually you know they're they're doing a great job and then getting it done very quickly I'm beaming for you man <laughs> I mean I can't imagine how that must feel I mean I mean you you just kind of did your best in portraying how it felt but to me I think and I'm still very young in the industry but I think it's such a perfect time to get into video game storytelling, whether like it's through streaming or in a documentary type series, because I mean, you know, there was the um, Raising Kratos documentary that just recently came out that's talking about video game development. There was the Ubisoft documentary that just hit Netflix maybe about a month ago that was apparently so popular that it spawned a spin-off series. Well, not spin-off series, but the creators of Always Sunny in Philadelphia making their own video game development reality or um, spoof kind of like a Silicon Valley thing. So I think that you're hitting the market at literally the perfect time. And I think you're going to be very successful when it comes to film. Yeah, well, one thing that always stuck out to me from the process is that um, I was in the unusual and very fortunate situation of having Seth Rogen and and Scott Rudin on board for the project uh, then again as, as a movie but uh, back in 2012 before we even sent the book proposal out to publishers um, and I remember that the book proposal went out to 25 publishers and 22 of them passed and the general reason was that video game books don't sell and I thought that's just so crazy that uh, you know just the fact that with Seth Rogen and Scott Rudin behind this, and they're going to be a documentary and a movie or a TV show, like, like that, even that had struggled to sell. That was crazy because I didn't believe that video game books wouldn't sell. Like, I, I, there was, I just think there weren't that many out there, and that there was this huge demand for it. And so I've always been really happy that console wars, you know, the success of console wars has probably made it easier for the next person, and and I hope that that will, you know, in whatever small way help create more video game books in the years ahead um and i would also say to any listeners out there who are thinking about writing a, a video game book please reach out to me and let me know if i can help in any way i always really want to be as helpful as possible in trying to get video game books off the ground because i just want to read them so if you're out there you can find me on twitter at blake j harris nyc um and hopefully next time i'm on the podcast there'll be even more video game books than there are now that's actually a really um well i mean i gotta thank you for the segue because um the last thing i wanted to talk to you about was at the end of this month i'm releasing my first uh novella that's inspired by video games called echoes of the holograph um not to go too into it on air or anything like that maybe we can talk about it afterwards but as a brand new writer um, even though I'm doing work in fiction, what sort of advice would you have for a new writer? Do you have anything special you like to do when you sit down to write, like cheese and crackers, like Stephen King, or like maybe like a shot of whiskey halfway through? Like, how do you deal with writer's block? Like, what was it like? What's it <laughs> like, man? Like for you? Um, I mean, I think the single best piece of advice I can give to young writers out there is don't wear pants. I think that it restricts creativity. I'm only half joking. Like I, I. I always wear shorts. I that's ever since I left my day job trading commodities. Like, you know, regardless of how cold it is here in New York, 
I, I wear shorts 99% of the time. Um, so uh, be comfortable, I guess, is really the lesson. And then more seriously, be comfortable with what you're writing. Like, um, I, I had a unsuccessful career as a screenwriter, which is the norm because it's a very hard profession. But um, I did often feel like I was writing things that I thought would succeed, even if I still loved them because I was writing them. You know, it was like I put a lot of time into it. But but Console Wars was the first thing I wrote that was just exactly what I wanted to read and how I wanted to write it and whether, you know, whether all 25 publishers had passed and I had to self-publish it, I was going to do it regardless just because I was really comfortable with the story and the way I was telling it and I really wanted it to exist and to be out there. So I think if, if you know, I think passion is such a key part of, of success in any profession, having now, you know, interviewed people in the film industry and obviously the video game industry, like I, like, someone like Paul Bettner is a great example. I think that um, at the end of the day, it's his passion that is what makes Playful successful and a successful, fun place to work at. You know, like he's not just doing it for the money. I can assure you that he's doing it because he believes in his vision. And, 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 and I love people who have that passion and that's what will sustain you um, most of the time when things are not going well. And so, um, yeah, th that would be my advice um, to to write what you want to read. So be passionate, but don't wear pants while you're being passionate. Got it. I actually, <laughs> I actually wrote um, a good portion of my book in avocado boxers. So he may be onto something. Nice. He may be onto something. Um, but yeah, that's. I mean, that's that's beyond awesome. Um, I wanted to kind of end the show with asking the question I always ask all of my guests and it's what's your favorite game of all time and I actually have a secondary question for you and specifically what is your favorite VR game of all time uh, that's an awesome question okay so my favorite game of all time is probably NHL 94 um, that's it's also one of the few games that I'm good at but um, but I love that game I love the way it feels <laughs> just like glide through that and um, I just think everything about it, like all the game dynamics and the, the, the animation and the music and everything is like perfect. Um, and then, and, but probably my, and my, probably my favorite game to replay, and this is partly just because, uh, you know, NHL 94 is rarely in virtual consoles, if ever, um, is probably Super Mario Bros. 3. Um, maybe there's some nostalgia for that, but it's also just an incredibly replayable game. Um, and then my favorite VR game, um, I mean, I'm, I'm gonna. We're gonna have to make this a a, a playful podcast <laughs> and say, uh, "Lucky Tail" is my favorite, my favorite game. Uh, I, I again, I, I'm not a, uh, a a big. Uh, I'm definitely a fan of, but I don't really play first person shooters mm -hmm. that much. So I, I especially liked the third person view, and and I think that I just love that Paul and Playful were able to succeed with with what with what he wanted, which is what I mentioned earlier of like, you know creating new things that feel familiar and and when 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 lucky comes out of his house and waves hello to you um i just feel like I, lucky's an old friend who i know even though the first time i played it i had never met him before or the first time i saw a demo like i i think there there's something special about that character and i'm glad to see that he's now going to be on a nintendo console uh, i mean you know living with the living with the community manager at playful i'm telling you right now looking around my apartment there's lucky stuff everywhere so i think you picked a pretty good mascot um that's awesome. That's awesome. I, I I didn't know if you were gonna go. I didn't know if you were gonna go Lucky's Tale or maybe just kind of throw a curveball. I mean, be like Beat Saber or Super Hot. But then, yeah, you said you don't really like first person games. So there you go. well, but yeah, but Super Hot's amazing. Super Hot is awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, look, you asked for my favorite. There's some plenty that I really like. And Beat Saber, Beat Saber, if you probably counted the hours I've spent, I'd probably spent more time in Beat Saber than anything else. Um, but oh, you yeah, actually played it. You can't go wrong. Oh, dude, oh, that's yeah. awesome. And my, my, my wife thinks I look cool when I'm, uh, oh. you know, punching. When, uh, when I'm doing the Beat Saber moves, oh. uh, even though you usually don't look that cool when you have a headset oh. on and you're stretching out. I don't know if anybody looks cool while playing Beat Saber, man. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. That's what she said to me, and I was like, all right, that's oh. great. That's the first time you ever said that about me playing oh, a game. Oh, man. I love it. I love it. Well, you know, it was probably the music, too, because I didn't have headphones on. Oh. So the combination of the beat and me uh, slashing left and right. I'm still yeah. I'm still so terrible at Beat Saber. I mean, regardless, I've only played it like twice, but, God, I am I'm just so bad at it. But I'm glad I'm glad you like it, man. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess probably time to wrap up the show. Um, I would, I could honestly pick. I, it's not considered to you, but I could probably pick your brain for another seven hours if I wanted to. But I wanted to thank you guys so much for listening to Eldar Talks Games. I was your host, Eldar. I was fortunate enough to be joined by the one and only and one of my favorite authors, Blake J. Harris. You can purchase his new book, History of the Future, on Amazon at Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and anywhere where you like to read your favorite books. Console Wars is available literally everywhere, too. You can find me anywhere online at Eldar, basically, and you can find Blake on Twitter at BlakeHarrisNYC. Blake, do you have any parting words? Uh, no, thanks for having me on Eldar. Uh, it was a great conversation. And uh, go team playful. It was awesome, man. Thank you so much. All right, take care.